All right. This is the Conversation Cannabis and Christianity podcast. My name is Miguel Torres, and I'm your host. And our special guest is Nikki Morillo. Nikki is a product development chef and entrepreneur, and she lives on a five-acre homestead where she cultivates hemp for her skincare line, Bocana Skin. She also manages a 5013C, a 501C3, excuse me, nonprofit, Texans for Safe Access, which is dedicated to advocating safe access to medical marijuana for citizens in the state of Texas. She in 2015, the state of Texas solicited applicants for the Compassion Use Program. Nico was one of the 43 original applicants, and in 2016, the state of Texas awarded three licenses. <clears throat> Currently, only two of those licenses are being used, and she is waiting for the program to expand beyond, beyond epilepsy into other areas of other areas where CBD hemp can help people. Um, Nico is deeply involved in farm life, operating a cottage bakery, raising chickens, and consulting with CBD businesses on product lines. She has over 20 years of culinary experience. Her expertise lies in bakery, pastry, and consumer packaged goods. Before venturing into the cannabis and hemp industry, she served as, as a developer with PepsiCo Frito-Lay for over a decade. Nico, how are you doing today? Hello, Nico. I'm doing so good, Miguel. How are you doing? I'm good. So we had we got a little oh, bit of a, Miguel. <laughs> we got a bandwidth thing, so we I don't publish any video, but um, <laughs> so I don't have any video on Nico. So that's why I was like, oh, is she still there? <laughs> so how are you, Nico? I'm good. Uh, are you? Can you hear me? Okay, Miguel. I can. Yep, you're clear. You're clear. It's good. Okay, perfect. Well, <laughs> I'm so sorry about my bandwidth. You know, I, I live on a small farm, and although we're only 35 minutes from downtown Dallas, sometimes it feels like it's 1995 out here. So I'm sorry that um, it's given us trouble. But thank you for having me, and thank you for your service. Oh, it's all right. It's all right. And, and it's all right. It's not your fault. It's, Dallas should have better coverage like that, even 35 miles out. They really should. <laughs> <laughs> But You're right. So, uh, as Nico and I were talking before we hit record, I uh, I did my undergrad at the University of Texas Brownsville, which is now the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley, and we were talking a little bit about about uh, growing up, and it was a pretty cool conversation. So we're gonna get back to that, but we're gonna get back to that later on. It's, it's uh, you you know, here's the thing, and this is for listeners, of course, too. A lot of the times, a lot of these guests and I are meeting and speaking with each other for the first time. And when we do that, you want to get to know somebody when you're going to have a conversation like this. And we had a really, uh, in a short amount of time, uh, unpacked a lot of stuff about uh, the many similarities between the two of us and uh, this generation we live in and this time that we're living in. It's pretty cool. So Nico is a, a chef and a farmer, and she is the owner and operator of Bocana Skin. And I want to start with the with the culinary arts part because I've had a, a few chefs on the program and I like food. I like food a lot. It, it, cooking is really cool. I wish I was better at it. And I think that when it comes to cooking and somebody who says, I'm going to dedicate myself to culinary arts, I kind of think that there was this time in their life when they recognized that. And the first question I have for you, 
is when you went into culinary arts and you stretch your skills into the health and beauty sector with Volcana Skin, how were you, <clears throat> excuse me, how were you and how I'm reading this verbatim and there's an error on the reading that I'm thing reading right now. Nico, I apologize. What was going on inside and around you when you made your decision to go into culinary arts? Like how old were you when that was going on? I was right out of high school. Um, I was probably nine, 20, 20 years old when I went. And um, I didn't know. I didn't know what to do, to be honest. I was a high school dropout my junior year and came from a kind of hard knock life. And, you know, my mother was single parent of five kids, with you know, a bunch of deadbeat fathers. And so she was trying to make it work. And, and I was um, one child of, and one girl, and we had four boys. And so I just kind of became a second parent in that home and cooked a lot and cleaned a lot and that just was kind of you know my contribution and I think a lot of people grew up like that in single parent families and seeing mom work hard Absolutely. Um, so, you know that's where the foundation began and um, after I dropped out I worked in a nursing home for a little bit as a CNA uh, back then uh, you didn't even need a GED to be a CNA. They had trained you on site. And so I did that for my first couple years. Um, and I just wasn't built emotionally for that. I didn't have the, the emotional maturity to deal with death and um, end of life. You know, so um, I also worked at Subway for a little bit. That was one of my most favorite jobs. I actually did that before the nursing home. And uh it was kind of weird because all my high school friends would get out for lunch and I would be making their sub sandwiches. But, you know, once I was able to make a paycheck um, and see that there is a way out of the home environment that I was in, you know, high school just seemed like a waste of time. And and I know that's not true, but, you know, I think that a lot of kids are are like that. You know, they have no conversations of college. They have no uh, possibility of doing what their peers are doing. And so you just try to figure it out. And that's what I was doing. And uh, my mother drank a lot during that time. And so there were other, you know, issues that, uh, you know, kind of made all of those dominoes fall into place for me to choose to leave high school. But it was a good choice for me in hindsight, because I learned the hard way <laughs> of how to make um, a living and and choices and street smarts and um, gave me courage and confidence to stand up against bullies and, you know, people that, you know, were in my way, basically. And as a, uh, as a minority woman uh, growing up where I did, that's what my life had always been. I grew up in Central Texas and my childhood years were spent in Zephyr, Texas, which is right in the center of Texas. It's rodeo country, and we were rodeo kids. I lived on a little two-acre uh, farm, and it was a, it was a great childhood, uh, but our house burnt down a couple days before Christmas when I was in the third grade, and it ended that farm idea that I had, and, hmm. and uh, you know, we were just normal kids, you know, that 
were dark, you know, we played in the sun and then in the dirt and, and uh, we didn't have, you know, television and electronics like today's kids. So, you know, those days are super special to me because I'm trying to get back to that here on my little five acre homestead. Uh, but back in those days, it was, you know, it was tough because, you know, even if you were the brown kid, you were the only brown kid in your class. <laughs> and um, being a minority was very uncommon in, in the country that I grew up in. So me wanting to leave uh, that town and find something else drove me to Dallas. And so going to Dallas, you know, I still didn't know what I wanted to do. And uh, um, I just by chance was watching TV one day and a commercial came on the TV for a culinary school. And it was just something that I was like, you know, I can do that. And that sounds fun. Um, <laughs> and That's it is cool. fun. Yeah. It's hard. I mean, being, being a chef is fun and hard, but, um, but that was my childhood. It was hard knocks. And I, I learned a very, you know, uh, street smart, a hard way of how to grow up and be independent and take care of myself. And, and, uh, so being a chef naturally fit into that because chefs are very, you know, independent and rebels and, um, a little bit, you know, hard around the edges at times, but also great leaders and great mentors and highly creative and innovative. So, um, it taps into all of those things. And as I had developed my career, it's led me to super exciting places. So um, you mentioned PepsiCo and PepsiCo Frito-Lay was yeah, yeah. Know, one of the interesting places that it took me to. You know, I had started out my career as a pastry chef at the Four Seasons. So I knew high end European pastries and um, and I had private chef for quite a while. And, um, and so I got recruited by PepsiCo to come and work on some cracker lines for them. And as a pastry chef, I knew the application because of crackers are a bakery technique. And, and so I, um, I took up the gig and I went to the Frito-Lay, uh, headquarters there in Richardson, Texas, and started making crackers for them for one of their lines. And, I didn't really know what I was doing, but um, it was interesting to work with the food scientists and the food engineers. It was definitely different than any kitchen I had been in. And, and there was so much science inside of the food. I was just kind of blown away. And um, at that time, they had hired a, a corporate chef to build out this culinary um, excellence kitchen, which is essentially just a product development kitchen. But they um, and that they would bring in all these chefs from all the different flavor houses like, you know, McCormick and international flavor houses that, you know, we use their stuff in, in our lines. And and so we would do our own little competitions to get products on the shelf. And and that process was sped up by having qualified chefs on on the team. And and of course, PepsiCo's and Frito-Lay's, most specifically their flavor development process is, is pretty solid. You know, they have so much experience in chip flavors and seasoning combinations, and it's all science, and and they have, you know, a lot of talent. And so I just continued to work with them as a consultant, and the corporate chef had um, wanted to bring me on more full time. And I, I was still pretty reluctant. I had a pretty good private chef gig going on at the time with this family. 
um, that I still work for from time to time to this day. Uh, and, and I enjoyed it. They, you know, uh, had several homes around the U.S. that we would travel to. And it was a really kind of posh lifestyle for a chef. You'd get on their jets and fly around and cook for, you know, wealthy people. And, and so I enjoyed that. And, and I got to experience, you know, fine dining food um, and the catering environment while I was still being a product developer. So I wasn't totally bought into just being an R&D chef. Um, it, it took me a few years um, and, a, and a great paycheck offer from the corporate world to finally give up most of my private chef and catering and to dedicate my time to product development. And I did that for 10 years uh, for PepsiCo Foods. And we worked with several other companies, you know, Taco Bell, of course, with the Doritos Taco Loco that sold, you know, 1 million tacos in the first day. <laughs> no kidding. Seriously, seriously, no kidding. Really? You worked on that? Yeah, they did. They did. And, and so, you know, it was great to be on a team, um, a culinary team that brought a lot of those things to market and, and to see your own products, you know, brought to market. Um, I have several products that are out there now that I, that I was tied to that original gold standard development. So it, it is a really cool process, but during that process, you know, my conscience just wasn't setting right with me. I felt convicted about some of the foods we were creating. I was learning more about food science um, and about flavor modifiers and food additives. And I was just like, wait a minute, like, you're not just, it's just not high fructose corn syrup and like, you know, chemicals. <laughs> it's more than that, you know, and, and they put, you know, they, they put these ingredients inside of foods that, that block you from being able to, from tasting sugar, um, you taste salt first, they put, you know, bid blockers in there to hide flavors, you know, and a lot of that is due to the actual processing of, you know, these um, ultra processed ingredients and the colors and the fats that they use that have no flavors, you know, so they have to just introduce a lot of different systems to make them more food like and and it was so far from where I started out as a pastry chef and, and as a, you know, and as just a private chef that I, I was losing my love of food and, and I was also sick. I was about 50 pounds heavier than I am now and had a lot of uh, inflammation and um, gut issues, had a terrible gut, uh, you know, major candida overgrowth. And I, I didn't know any of this stuff. I just knew that I felt like crap. <laughs> So I, um, it took a layoff, you know, PepsiCo was losing their um, business, you know, people are healthier, people are snacking different, and the soda business is dying. And so, you know, I was one of about 6,000 people that was laid off. And I was, um, I didn't really know what to do. Because for me as a development chef, like PepsiCo was the best job you could get as a development chef. And so I'm like, well, where am I going to go after this, you know? And I try to look at a few places that would be more of a natural fit for me. And I did work at, at um, Dickie's Barbecue as their R&D chef for a little bit. They, they wanted to explore clean label um, side dishes. And, um, you know, the market's just not ready for that. And they're, they're really not ready for the price jump to have a clean label mm. uh, product. Nor are they ready to be okay with a mac and cheese that isn't neon yellow. So, you know, I, I don't think the consumers they're ready is ready yet for the uh, functional ingredients to be taken out of the products, because these are the things that make us addicted to these products. 
It's ultra-refined sugars that are in different forms, modified starches to change flavors and textures, chemicals to um, make your body and your mind and your taste receptors react a certain way. And for me, that was just too much science in the food and not enough food. And so after um, the layoff and, you know, some soul searching of where my career was headed, I was like, well, my career's over as a chef. I am not going to go back to working kitchens. My body's too broken from that. And I'm not going back to corporate R&D because um, I can't contribute to that. Because that's I in my heart of hearts, whenever I really found out what the functional ingredients did, I felt like I was killing people. If I can put an ingredient inside of a food that will block you from tasting sugar, then then you're messing with my brain receptors and my taste receptors. And I'm just not okay with that. And so ethically, I had to walk away from that paycheck. And, um, but before I left PepsiCo, one good thing happened. And it was that I went on a work trip with, um, with them, with Frito-Lay to uh, Denver, Colorado. And it was right at the time whenever Denver went re- uh, went recreational. Uh-huh. And yeah. I think it was around 2015 or so. Yeah. And so that was right around the time when they went le- uh, legal. And so everybody knew I was an advocate at my job for cannabis. I, I had used it privately for a long time. And um, we didn't know we were patients until all of the, until we all found out together, basically. <laughs> um, that, like, oh, that's... I'm actually a patient and I, I am a patient today in, in our um, Texas program as well. Right on. So um, anyways, I, uh, I went to the dispensary and I saw everything and I said, that's what I want. I'm going to be, I'm going to infuse pastry items and I'm going to blow it out. And so that's really what I wanted. I went home, I had my sketches, I had my plan and, and then the license application came out and I was like, oh, this is not going to (laughs) happen. And, um, and so, you know, plans change and I've been real good at adapting to the, to the change. Um, I don't, mess with any type of hemp or CBD inside of foods at this point. And that's why I chose skincare. Um, I understand regulation from a high level. And even if you look at regulation outside of medical cannabis and hemp, just within the food processing environment, those regulations are tough. The level of sanitation inside of manufacturing facilities to the SOP work, to all of the uh, risk analysis that's been done to keep a product safe and not um, hurt the public is immense. And so, you know, the cannabis industry and the hemp industry needs those same standards that all other manufacturers are going through because we have a medicine that, uh, that can create psychoactive effects. And so consumer products need to be safe. And they need to be labeled and they need to be tested and all of those things. Um, And so I have taken that path of supporting, you know, regulation. And I know that's a hot topic, but, um, you know, and it's mainly been because of my involvement in the food development world and the conversations surrounding CBD Mm -hmm. and all of the food shows that are uh, non-industry related. This would be, you know, food shows that are specific to product developers 
Okay. When you go to those places, um, there might be one person that understands CBD regulation and can talk to you, but the rest of them are just sitting back waiting for the regulation to work out so they can enter the ball game too. And those people are the developers that are making consumer foods around our world. So the market hmm. will be flooded once that regulation takes place. And, and that's been my goal of creating a product that's unique so it can withstand what's going to happen um, when that does take place. And also protecting myself from everything that we're seeing now with um, all of the hemp uh, products that are flooding the market and um, and the regulation that we feel that's going to come down soon on them. And, um, you know, I'm, it's yeah. very expensive to be an are you, are you, are you Are you thinking of the, 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 the Delta eights and that stuff? Yes. Okay. The Delta eights, the THCA flowers. Um, yeah. I, I do feel like, it will be regulated more. And, um, and I don't think that, uh, you know, I don't think that it's going to be allowed in food products the way that it is today. Mm. Um, so, you know, I, I'm glad I didn't invest my money into exploring edible products, consumable products, because the testing on these products are super expensive. I mean, just getting a product, you know, to where it can be sellable to the to the public is incredibly expensive. So, you know, to go through that whole process and then not be able to sell would bankrupt my little self-funded company. So yeah. skincare was always a safe avenue for me to explore the plant without really getting too far into a space where I might get myself in trouble. That's cool. You know, your perspective on this, Nico, is really cool because, uh, <clears throat> I'm thinking of, of another person who was a, a guest on season three, Richard Rose. He was the hemp nut. And in the nineties, he was on national television, like late night with Jay Leno, like that kind of national television. And he's not an entertainer. He, he's not a, a musician or a actor or anything like that. He's not an athlete. He's not an entertainer, but he was on the show with hemp nut and he was in grocery stores and he, his perspective on, on um, business sectors, growing and dying is really is really uh it's insightful and hearing you talk reminds me a lot of of him when it comes to uh the corporate side and the the industry side of things and when you're saying yeah these investors are these companies are just waiting to jump in and it's a really cool perspective you have i think it's one that i think a lot of people are already enjoying listening because they're listening right now and i think it's it's one that that uh, will continue to be your, your, I think your opinion will continue to have a lot of value in the future because your insight into this stuff is, is pretty cool. I took a long time to say that. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, I think chef, uh, chef centric products are interesting and unique. Um, you know, chefs are incredibly creative, as I mentioned before. And you see some of the products like Rose with their Turkish delights, you know, that was, are doing very well. And, you know, I think that, um, and then by them working with chefs and I, I think that there's a lot of opportunity for innovation. And, and that's the very reason that PepsiCo 
uses uh, product development chefs, and not just PepsiCo. I mean, all of the major food companies across the U.S. have development chefs, even small ones. So um, you use them because they understand flavor profiles and because they understand consumer trends. Uh, and you use them because they're highly creative in food products. So, you know, I think that as the market opens up, yes, you'll see a flood of um, products from the big developers, you know, but I don't feel that they're going to be able to stand up against uh, niche artisanal chef centric products, you know. And so I do think that, you know, you will see the companies that are using development chefs and, and their product development and line extensions that you'll have uh, a better chance at getting that product quickly to market as well as having a product with some real identity to it. And, um, and so that's what development chefs add. And that was really part of my goal um, is coming to the, to the space and bringing that skill set. It's just, I, I feel like the industry is not ripe enough yet. You know, I, I do have a client that I uh, consult for in the, in the CBD pet food industry and, you know, that's fun, but it's, you know, it's not human um, edible. So I'm excited to see how the market will, you know, mature to where I'm able to use that skill set and not feel like I um, am putting my any type of, uh, you know, restriction or, or ramification on me by doing it here in the state of Texas. And, uh, and, and maybe I'm a little bit hesitant, too hesitant to, to step into any gray areas. But, you know, as the founder and chair of, of a 501c3, you know, I, I have to lead by example. And I, I do believe that uh, cannabis is medicine. And I believe that it should be treated as, um, as that. And to create products for patients is a privilege. And so, you know, it needs to be done at the highest level with the highest level of sanitation and handling um, that you've seen. And large manufacturers know that level of sanitation. And I feel like the cannabis space needs to get there because that's the type of medicine I want. You know, I want clean medicine that's in a, in a facility that I know is up to the standards that any other facility is held up to. And I want to know that it is what it is, that what I'm taking is what it is. You know, the label is accurate. It has, you know, the right information and it's safe for me. So, you know, I think that we'll get there. It's just painful to watch, isn't it? You know, <laughs> and, and painful to go through. Um, but that's part of the beauty is that without the pain, you know, then you can't see the reward or the blessing. And, uh, and I think that that is been the greatest journey for me is that I'm not just here to make money because there's not very much money in this industry for someone like me, <laughs> especially right now as an entrepreneur, it costs a lot. It costs a lot to hold the hemp license here. Right. Um, you have to have you know the growing license, the manufacturing license, the retail license on top of creating the product, getting the labels made, the testing done, carrying the website and all of the uh, processors to even be able to sell it online, those, all those things add up. And so, you know, I hope that um, the regulation does help businesses like myself solidify some real avenues of marketing and selling this product because the way that we have it right now, I don't know how companies survive. 
um, especially in the beginning stages. So I'm confident that, you know, there, there will be change. And, um, and I love doing this work. I love being a chef. Um, I've, I've fallen back in love with my career. That's um, cool. That's farm, very cool. Yeah, the farm, I think, brought that in place. We moved out here uh, right around the pandemic, uh, September of 2020. It's pretty unexpected. Um, I had already been, I was already creating the skincare line just out of our Dallas home. And my goal was always just to source out individual cannabinoids, mix them together and make something. It was never to grow my own product. And so, um, you know, finding the farm was unexpected and it happened very quickly. And we came out and, and that next season, that next spring, was our first uh, crop in the ground and we've been growing since. So this, we're coming up on our fourth year of growing hemp and, um, and we're vertically integrated. Right on. Some, yeah. Some cool new things I'm trying this season with some uh, live rosin pressing and different extraction techniques. Right now we, um, we just do sous vide and, and do an infused oil, but I'm excited to try some other stuff and, um, and this is all with Bocana skin, right? Yeah, this is all with Bocana skin. Yeah. And, and, you know, yeah. And so we're, I'm going to give everybody the website right now because I forgot to give it to you when I do give it to them when I did the introduction. I kind of botched that introduction. I apologize, Nico. But everybody can reach Bocana skin at www.bocannaskin.com. Got it. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, so, I love it. So um, the vision that you have for Bukana Skin, is, it, is there a bigger vision for it too? I mean, I just love the idea of farm-to-face skin care. And so hemp is just one ingredient of other botanicals that we grow or intend to grow here on the farm. Um, but it's to support regenerative farming. Of course, on our <laughs> on our farm, we have to go all the way. And so, you know, it's to create a farm um, here in this little city to teach um, how we are trying to practice our regenerative farming. And we're working with the NRCS on water collection and, um, and putting in high tunnels. And really, it's all community-based. And That's the more time cool. we spend here, the more it moves away from you know me focusing on making a profit to me building a community. And um, so that's really the long-term vision. I, the skincare is a fun business for me. I, I don't take it too serious because this industry just changes overnight. Um, so I love to grow food. I grow tomatoes. And so gardening is, you know, part of my identity as a chef. And so I just want to teach other people. I want to do community outreach, teach, teach about the nonprofit, teach about the work that we do with legislators. Um, and about, you know, how to get into the program, teach farmers about hemp and um, and then teach my community, you know, how to be part of a community. I want to, you know, fan my cottage bakery here and start opening up so people can come here and start learning um, how to homestead. And so, yeah, a lot of dreams, you know, and big vision. Uh, I like how my neighbor put it, you know, you had a big old pile of wood that I needed to clear um, in the back pasture. And I'm talking to him about it. And he just says, you just need to, you know, sit back and relax a little bit. Cause that pile of wood isn't going to go anywhere. 
And you just need to make a list of what's most important in your life and just start on what's most important to work on now, because that pile of wood could be sitting here five years from now and nobody cares. And it's like, you're right. You know, so that's what I did. I took that advice and I, you know, put down all of my goals of what I want. And we have a lot of exciting stuff coming up this year. Um, we'll be selling the skincare, hopefully in the Dallas local market, which is a kind of a really popular farmer's market in Dallas. And they only let companies that are growers sell CBD there, which is okay. awesome. So we'll be one of very few offering it. And, um, and then we're also participating in the chef for farmers event, which is a huge um, event in Dallas where they bring in chefs and partner them with farms and create dishes. And it's kind of a very posh, a culinary centric event. I think they even have one in Houston now. Um, but I get to showcase my hemp, which is like awesome. And so, um, you know, I, it, I'll probably put it into, um, oil-based form and it will be used as a component to a drink or a, or a plated entree or a plated dish. So, you know, those small things we can do to, you know, get our um, name out and meet the community. I think that's exciting. And I feel like the um, fruition of the business will finally come into place at the right time. Once I do what I have been called to do, which is to work with, the public and to be a service to the public. And, and so, so as I said, I don't take any of it too serious. Uh, the license application. <laughs> you know, really I, I, I've heard you say that twice now and I'm like, wow, I get, I, I think I understand it though, because you're definitely taking it seriously. I, you know, that's a lot of work. <laughs> that's a lot of work. That's a lot of time. That's a lot of energy and it's a lot of money. And, uh, and I understand why you say you don't take it too seriously. But it's obvious that that you care about it. And that's why I say you take it seriously, because you care about it. You know what I mean, Nico? Does that make sense? Yes, I, I do. I, I care about the industry. I want to see Texas have a strong medical program. I work with a lot of patients um, with a nonprofit. We do a lot of educational work. A lot of it stopped since the pandemic. But before the pandemic, we did um, a lot of traveling with the nurses and um, lawyers that are part of our nonprofit to educate on the program. and. And I'll, I continue to do that. Um, this 2024 is when we'll start amping up for our nonprofit work to get ready for 2025. So I am passionate about the industry and and there are uh, there. It is serious, um, but not serious enough for me to become stressed like I was in corporate. That's and, what I that's where I get. What, that's what I was. Yeah. Yeah. I understand what you're saying. I, I yeah, get what corporate you're saying. work was tough and you have to bend your standards, but you don't really have to do that in this space. You can do whatever you want. You can, you can create whatever you want. There's so much opportunity. You just have to play by the rules. And, uh, corporate did teach me that and taught me how to be a rule follower. And, and that, that part of that part of that kind of, whether it's corporate or whatever type of entity that, that provides that type of experience, you know, it's, uh, it's beneficial. Don't you think? Yes. I mean, you see the type of recalls that come out whenever, you know, lettuce has E. coli or salmonella or like, you know, some frozen food that has a, a pea that in it that had, you know, been contaminated and the amount of loss that a company goes through. Most companies cannot handle a recall because it's financially taxing on the company. So yeah. 
if you if you think a recall is expensive, you know, then you shouldn't be complaining about the cost to test your product. And so all of those different, you know, all of those different steps you have to go through to get a product to market are, are important because ultimately you're trying, you're feeding the public and that's a privilege. And I even say that, I mean, outside of manufacturing, restaurants that are clean, if a restaurant, if I have an indication that a restaurant not, is not clean, which I can usually tell from the restrooms, that restroom, <laughs> I know that <laughs> restaurant is not visited by me again, you know, and uh -huh. it's, and it's because if they're not putting that additional attention into making sure that the room that's used the most in their establishment is clean and stocked, then whatever is going on in the kitchen is worse. And so that's a good, I don't. That's a good point. I got three young. <laughs> I got three young sons, and I'm trying to tell them, you guys have got to clean this bathroom. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's yeah. a major thing. But and and it's a uh, it's you know it's a funny thing that you say that, but it, it is it is true. It's funny how certain things can indicate or leave, leave maybe not completely indicate, but help people understand, you know what, if you're not taking care of the bathroom over here, that's a, that's such a plain thing to see. And, I'm, and you say it so plainly, but it's something I think so many of us forget because we walk right into that bathroom and go, dang, this thing is filthy. <laughs> and you know what I mean? They'll go order food. <laughs> yeah. And with no hot water in the hand sinks. Oh, it's you crazy. Know. <laughs> Gonna wow. freeze these but no, I mean, I think standards are um, important. And I think that when you start taking those standards seriously and, and realizing that there there's reasons behind them, then then you have a common goal and you have, a you know, and the common goal for us and the government should be is providing safe products for the end user, you know, and and so that's why I believe in it. Uh, I've not to say that I like every step of it or, you know, that, um, there, that there could be an easier way, but I can't make that change. And I think that, you know, advocates have certainly screamed their lungs off on the hilltops to get the change. Um, but we'll see what the government does. It's, it's interesting. It's interesting times to see, you know, how they're going to handle it. And, um, you know, I don't want to get to any into politics at all, but you know, I think that that's that's we all right. Know. We don't have to. We don't. We don't I don't want yeah. to get into that left right stuff either. I don't yeah. want to get into the right no, stuff. No, I don't. But but here's what I do. Here's what I would like to ask you though, because um, at the beginning, before we hit record, I think it's before we hit record, we were you were talking about uh, you and and other folks, and 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 uh, we're waiting for 2025 when there's going to be a change in some policy. Is that right? Yeah, I mean that's what a lot of more conservative advocates are thinking. Um, you know, we we saw the bill open up with such limited uh, qualifying conditions, and really a lot of those conditions were only approved because of the massive turnout of autism moms and and moms with children that had you know epilepsy. And it's it was so you know like how could you say no? They're all in front of the committees with pictures of their children, and like you know, of course it you needed to be compassionate to that, um, but. You know, unfortunately, that was as far as Texas was willing to go in the beginning. And, um, you know, so this last session, they've opened it up. We have probably about 12 different qualifying conditions. And um, this last session, we were really hoping to get chronic pain added. And, and I believe they were going to move up the THC cap. 
Um, but nothing got changed. Uh, you know, I think there was just too much going on elsewhere, more important stuff that our th state thought they needed to focus on. So what kind of changes, was, what kind of changes would you like to see though? Like, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, I would, I would, I think that in a state like Texas, it's baby steps. And the, the number one change that I would like to see is I want chronic pain added. Chronic pain is, you know, addresses the opioid epidemic. And it, it, it gives access to so many different patients that are dealing with real pain. And so, um, so that's, that's my hope is that they do add it. Um, but I know that our national team is working on some great stuff, ASA, um, Americans for Safe Access. So, you know, I feel like um, the, the rescheduling is where um, we're going to be putting a lot of our focus. But yeah, personally, I'd love to see it. I would just love to see more conditions added. And, and I would love the program to mirror, um, you know, other programs with conditions that, um, that haven't even been spoken of. Uh, such as sleep and oh, you know, sleep is a big one. Sleep is yeah, huge. anxiety and I mean sleep is number one. It's just it helps so much, um, and anxiety and, and weight loss and all kinds of stuff. You know, I, I want to see them open it up to every condition that you would be able to get a pharmaceutical prescription for. You know, um, because the the research is adding up and we'll get there. You know, but it's exciting to be part of, you know, a national movement and a global conversation and you know there's so little that like one person can do but together we've managed to do so much so it i i do feel um humbled and privileged to be part of such a large collective of people most of them all patients uh, that are fighting for this and that believe in it and so I, I don't think my story is too unique i just think that um Oh, I think it is unique. I, I think it is unique. It is unique. It Thank may you. not it may not be unique to where you're to to what you're thinking of, but I think it's very unique. I think it's a very cool story. Well, thank you. I've I've just been over here, you know, in on my farm pecking away trying to figure out um what's next and and uh the nonprofit work and is where my heart is. And um, you know, those are unpaid positions. So I just continue to build out you know, the work there so people can understand that cannabis is medicine and we do have a legal program in Texas for them to get into. And I do a lot of that outreach online. I have several groups on just social media that I uh, educate to, um, you know, through, you know, the classes of growing hemp where that gives me the opportunity to, to then talk about the medical program. Um, and so I, I'll just continue to do that. And of course, growing food is, a huge passion and, and growing this hemp. And aside from that, you know, I am fingers crossed going to claim one of these licenses. Uh, <laughs> I, <hope, laughs> I, hope, I hope you get one too. I hope you get one too, because somebody with, with your heart to care for people needs to have one of those licenses for sure. I think so too. I want to represent, um, you know, the minorities in this space. Uh, you know, I uh, want to represent females in this space as well as patients, you know, which get lost in this conversation. And it's so unfortunate to see some of the medical programs suffer from um, recreational taking, you know, the spotlight. And I don't know how to fix that, but I do know that the government is, you know, going to have the final say in how they choose to fix it. And, and if we want 
real businesses um, and to play the game. That's just how it's going to be. <laughs> but I'm still going to advocate. And I'm, you know, and even in my small little town where I have to go and meet with the committee just to tell them that I'm going to educate on hemp, you know, that there's a lot of, you know, bad stigma still attached to, to this. And you have to, you know, you have to be a little bit, um, how do I say it without being crude? You know, you just have to be a little bit tough. Oh, you, if, if you if you want to, you can swear if you want, Nico. It's okay. I don't I, just, want to swear, I, I, you know. I don't. I don't. I don't restrict guests. You know what no, I mean? I don't, I don't swear. You know, but um, you know, I'm also a chef, so we, you know, we can be crude at sometimes. So it's no, a it's I, a high it's a high pressure. It's a high doing the work you're doing is high pressure. It's, I think the it's, it's very, maybe I can grab the bull by the horns. That's a good saying. Okay, I get what you're saying. There you go. You, there you go. Sometimes you got. You're, you're not afraid to step in and and uh, lead. No, absolutely not. I mean, it's, you know, and, and defend and defend this industry, defend farmers. You know, I had um, the mayor of, of my uh, council say, oh, you're a pot farmer, you know, right in the middle of a council meeting. And so, you know, yes, I had to educate on um, what I was and what I was not and what the program was here in Texas. And after, you know, walking out of the committee meeting and then having shared, you know, several long detailed messages, giving them all the information they needed on the program and on the Texas Compassionate Use Program, the medical program, hemp and so on. They, they stepped down and said, okay, like, you know, let's start over. So yeah, you have to be able to stand your ground. Um, and, you know, I, I'm okay with that chef as a chef, it's a male dominant industry. It's a tough industry. It's not for um, the weak. And so I was trained to be strong and and it primed me just for this, not just being a chef, but coming from that uh, country background, hard knock life definitely pushed me to be able to stand up to people. And, and it was interesting because my niece, she lives with us and she was there with me. She's only 11. And she goes into the legislator's office at the Capitol with me to speak with. Ah, uh, you took her. You took her with you. Yeah, I take her with me to Very the cool. Capitol, That's and so cool. yeah, so she knows, you know, how respectful our leaders are. So her encountering the committee here and a different experience, she was like, "Whoa, they need to be fired." And I said, you're smart <laughs> so um so yes different experiences and that's what I was trying to educate her on is like you know we've had two different responses to to that and you saw both and she's like yeah you know so you know it's it, it's something that we need to educate on and and um and I'll continue to do it regardless if a lot of people are still stuck in the past and, and especially in a state like Texas we need it so I'll continue to do it that is a very cool story, Nico. And we're not we're not even done yet. That's I mean, you said hard knocks life, and and that's where it's kind of like yeah, you, you you dropped out of high school, and you had you got with one parent, and your parent was an alcoholic, and here you are getting involved with all this stuff that is complex and very detail oriented and very high pressure, and impacts people all over the place. And I'm talking about your work with with PepsiCo Frito Lay as an R and D chef, but also with cannabis too, and that and that's that's a that's a uh, that's a fascinating story. And you know what? I'm going to share something with the listeners that from before we hit record because I think we're ready to shift into. You ready to shift in the second half of the podcast? I'm ready. All right. 
So uh, before we hit record, we're we're getting to know each other, and um, uh, I did not realize this, but uh, Nico is also mixed race. His uh, mother is is uh, Caucasian, and father was Hispanic, just like mine. And uh, it was is it was interesting talking with her because I I grew up in it with it in Michigan, in East Lansing, Michigan, where there's a major university, and even in a major university where they had a housing complex for international students. like families and stuff like that. And they were large complexes because the university had over 40,000 people. It was still, uh, it was still, I was still demographically a minority and uh, moving to, and hearing Nico say that she felt that way in Texas, in, in the, in the part of the country. And I, and I don't say United States country, I'm talking about terrain, uh, topography country right so we're talking in the in the country farming aspect that's where she felt that too and that's where i thought that was unique because when i, when I did finish my undergrad i did uh complete my undergrad at the university of texas brownsville which is now the university of texas rio grande valley and uh <clears throat> i find this fascinating because i'm gonna because this is gonna tie in i'm telling this for a reason so so hang in there nico when and uh, and you, you remember me telling you about this earlier uh I hit culture shock when I went down to the Valley of Texas, the Rio Grande Valley is, is a very, is a, is a culture shock thing. And it was, it was, here's, here's an example of how it happened. Growing up, uh, growing up as a demographic minority in the North, moving to a state where there's many Hispanics, mostly Mexican descent. There's an anticipation of acceptance. And when most people heard me speak without an accent, It was a rejection and it's a bit different. And now I say, I tell this story because we're about to get into the second half of this conversation where we talk about what we were raised with, what Nico, if she grew up with a religion or, or any type of belief system and having these similarities between me and her, I want to share that with the listeners because these similarities were just discovered before we hit record. And uh, it's very cool. It was very cool. So <clears throat> are you ready, Nico? I'm ready. All right. I, I, I am enjoying your story. It is very cool. All right. Were you, uh, oh, you know what? You know what? I, I apologize. Somehow I missed a question for you on, on the, on the email. I apologize. Nico, I'm going to, I'm going to give this to you. It's, it's not a quick, it's not a hard question, but were you, were you raised with a religion, a worldview a philosophy, some type of belief system or the absence of any type of faith whether that be a atheism or agnosticism. Um, well, I, I grew up in Texas. I thought everybody here was Christian, but right, right, right. right. <laughs> That's why this stuff tied. That's why I told that story. It's kind of like, wow, this is fascinating <laughs> to hear you saying you hit, you hit that type of environment in Texas, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I grew up in the Bible belt of Texas and um, I am from the generation of evangelism and, um, mega churches and speaking in tongues, laying hands on people and all of that um, stuff. And we were in church several days a week. I would, I mean, definitely we were in church on Wednesday nights and Sundays every week, but you know, my mom and sisters were involved in the church choir. So, and we also did these things called care groups where you would go to people's houses and it was basically like potluck and Bible study. So We were raised in it, around it. We were, you know, would go visit all the mega churches and and Lakewood and Livingston, and you know, and 
yeah, we were totally church kids and we were called Jesus junkies back in those days. And the song, there was a song that uh, we sang and it was, and it was saying that we were Jesus junkies and we just can't get enough. And sweet, holy Moses, I'm hooked on that stuff. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, uh, that's how I grew up. And, um, and my family still is, uh, follows Christianity. I have a, a whole family that's, very in love with uh, Christ, and so, so yeah, so am I. It's it's a big part of my identity, and um, a big part of my life choices. Business choices are all led by my faith, which is hard because I'm also a homosexual. Which <laughs> you know, a lot of people will ask. You know, um, well, they won't ask me. I don't think anybody's been brave enough to ask me. But you know, um, how can you be gay and Christian? And um, and they're shocked that gay people can be followers of Christ, but um, I found I find that asinine. It's crazy. That's just crazy talk. So you know, finding my identity through my uh, my Christian identity through my sexuality has had its own challenges, but not compared to some of the other challenges I've had in life. I mean. There's been so many times that I can look back, especially now I'm, you know, I'm 43 years old that I can look back in my younger years, especially my 20s, which were, you know, pretty much a joke for any of us. <laughs> it was an experiment time. Um, so I, you know, I had a good time I, in my 20s down in South Padre Island, Texas. Absolutely. I had, I had a good time. Uh, yeah. Too, too good of a time. Too good of a time. Too good of a time. Yes. Yes. I spent most of my time on the beaches and somewhere in the Caribbean and um, that was my place to go, but you know, cool. yeah, I, you know, I can look back at those times and like, remember so many times that like God actually pulled me from death and pulled me out of situations. And, um, and so I don't know, I don't know if as people get older and they start reconnecting with their spirituality and they start recognizing that more, you know, at least I do. I, do. I know Good. what you mean. I do know what you mean. I do know what you mean. And I, the, the reconnection for me has been in the understanding that it's a personal relationship. Does 100%. that make sense? Does that make sense? 100%. Okay. Remember, I, I don't have any video on, I don't have a video on, uh, on Nico right now, so I can't see her, but that's why, and that's where, that's where it is a personal relationship. It, it's, uh, it's, uh, that's been it. And that's been it. And and that's when that's what it boils down to for every single person. It's a personal relationship. And uh, if you think the other person, uh, uh, you think the person who made you hates you. Well, that's a that's 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 a starting point. That's one of the reasons why I asked that question. You know, where you're raised. I just guessed that question because a lot of people learn a lot of things. And of course, we 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 have a lot of those things formed when we're children. And um, this life is pretty wild and amazing, and uh, it's uh, it's an interesting time to be alive. And your story so. is your story is really cool, Nico. Your well, story is you. really really cool. Thank you. So, I mean, we we can get deep into the spiritual talk, you know, and it's it'll start to get weird. But um, oh well, well, let's 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 get weird then because we got <laughs> I got another question for you. you I ready? mean, I just yeah, I'm ready. All right. The universe and all life in it. I have an idea of how you might might uh, answer this, but I'm I'm uh, I'm going to ask you anyway. 
universe and all life in it. Do you think it's a result of a series of accidents, or do you think there's an intelligent designer behind it? And I'm I'm guessing you under you you get what I'm getting at, right? I mean, yeah, of course, there's intelligent design. Um, I mean, anybody that goes and searches for the science, the new science coming out, it, it, it's it's just phenomenal at what they have found and what science reassures and what you know. And and I'm on the side of, of you know. God creating us and and I could never I, I could never think that we came from anything different than that but what I'm most excited about because like that conversation is so it's just an old conversation now you know what the new conversation is is like what it's going to be what Wait, is heaven going to be? okay gotcha all right gotcha and I think that that is where it's so interesting and fun because I look at all of the creative people on this earth and everything that has been made and everything that the thoughts that go around. And it's an, it's an intense amount of creativity that's been placed within us. And I, and I do think that God does place talents within all of us. Some people are able to find those and some people are, are, are not able to, but when you are able to um, recognize the talent that he's given you and ask for the anointing, of that talent, the talent is magnified. And you can see that in real evidence today. You can see the works and the blessings today by asking for the anointing of your talent. And there's nothing wrong with asking for that. It's it's kind of a secret power. But if you take all of everybody's talents and you put them in heaven and magnify that your talent times a hundred, times a thousand, Right. But we're going to be a new body. And uh, and I do feel that in heaven, those talents will be so magnified and so pristine from each individual that it will it's going to blow our mind as a very supernatural place that is out of this world, like nothing you've never seen. I mean, my in my mind, I'm seeing buildings. Of course, we know the streets are made of gold, you know. And rubies and sapphires, but I see morphing buildings, buildings that are like we see LED lights, and that's like the best <laughs> we can do to change I, something. The but imagery, a building the, made of like jewels and rhinestones that yeah. changes the LED screen is where my mind takes me. That's exactly what I was thinking of. The illustration of, of how it's described with with stones and gems, and it's kind of like, wow, you you've been reading this stuff, you're familiar with it. That's cool. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in this, you know, we were um, laying hands on people whenever I was, you know, in the second or third grade, we, um, it's, it's what I knew, we were always looking out for end times. Uh, and mm. that's just, you know, what, um, that's just what my generation did. And for a long time, I mean, I did fall away from my religion. And um, thank goodness came back and I'm born again. But, uh, you know, I think that that's very common for us to do, to fall away, you know, and so I'm glad to be back because now that I'm back, I can realize that even though I abandoned the religion, God never abandoned me in the darkest places that I've ever been in my life. And in, in the places that I would be embarrassed for Christ to see me in, and the, you know, even then I can recall times that he saved me from death. It got me home safely, you know, and, and things that I've never even seen 
you know, so. I um, mean, things, things that you're protected from that you didn't even know were coming against you. Absolutely. That, when you said unseen, that's what I meant. That's what, because I, I get what you're saying. When I, I understand the, the, I understand what you're saying. It's kind of like, wow. It's kind of like biblical terminology. It is. It, it is. For yeah, some people, because, it's. Because it's it's our awareness, right? It's like when 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 we have a challenge, we're aware of it. We see it. We understand. We may not understand it, but we see it, and we we understand that it's we're aware that it's there. And then there's other things that we don't even know about, but they're still working against us. And that's where I understand what you're talking about. There's a uh, there's a um, I got a I got I that had is I was having a really hard summer. It was like it was like almost ten years ago. Five or like eight or nine years ago, we had uh, we had two children, and and it was a very difficult summer. We're, we're spending a couple times, spending a couple of weeks at my mother's house because we the place we were living in had uh, had had mold, and we had to move out of it. So the landlord was fixing it up, and uh, glass door. You know, you have you have, you have a screen door, glass door, then you have the 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 wood door that and the front door, right? So the wood door is open and the glass door is there and it's it's, it's a full pane glass. And uh, I'm sitting with one of my sons and they're both a baby and a toddler. And I'm the only one in the house. It's just me and him. And and I hear this bang on the window of the door. And I'm like, why would somebody hit, delivering a package hit the door that hard? So I, I get up, I go over and there's nothing there. It's empty. And I was just like, that's weird. What's going on? Maybe some kid on a prank i don't know so I go back and i'm hanging out with my with my son and i hear it again and this time i get up faster and i go over there and then i see a hawk flying away from the door to the tree that's in front of my it's in my one of the two trees that's in my mother's front yard and at that time like i said i was going through a very difficult time right it was a very hard time in, in life and I, I I I do call it a revelation. The revelation that I had at that point was, I know things are hard for you right now, but I'm also protecting you from things that you don't even know are coming against you. Wow. So that when you said even things I hadn't seen, I understood what you meant, and I wanted to share that story with you to help you understand that I get what you're saying. Yeah. Well, and it's good to be able to hear the voice of God um, or the Holy Spirit. You know, the Holy Spirit didn't come into us, which the Holy Spirit's our conscience for anybody that's listening that doesn't know. The voice inside of you that's saying this is right or wrong is the Holy Spirit. And uh, before Christ was um, crucified, people never had that. So we have it now to discern between right and wrong. Um and so it's good to be in touch with that voice. And that's what that voice was. Um, it protects you throughout your life and, and leads you. And, um, and so the more that you can connect with it, the more you can realize. And, and I have so many stories like yours of uh, protection. Right. That, that, that's the kind of stuff when you're saying that, when that's yeah. why, that's why I shared that because you, 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 you said it yourself. And that sounds like, wow, that's to be able to recognize that thing and, and to credit somebody other than your own wit our own wit, not it's, it's editorial. You, you know, our own wit or our own intelligence or our own grit, right? Or our own whatever the slang is for the time of this decade, and go. You know what? I could not have done anything to. I did nothing, and something happened, and it was my life that was saved. 
well, or, my, or maybe my future, my future. You know what I mean? Because yes. oftentimes it's like not life and death, like you almost got hit by a car. Oftentimes it's a decision. There's a point in life and we hit that and it's right in front of us and we have to decide. And sometimes that help comes in the form of helping us decide better or it comes in because I know I've made bad decisions and bang. Oh, man, I should not have done that. I was still protected. That's a pretty cool thing to to uh, understand and give credit to your maker when when those things happen. So that's that's uh, I, I'm enjoying this conversation very much, Nico. I'm very much. I love speaking about my God, and it's uh, I try as much as I can um, without you know making people uncomfortable if they may not be followers. But um, I'll share two times, and I'll try to be quick with the stories of you know where God did pull us out literally a fire but I, I i did mention to you before that you know i grew up on a small two acre farm yeah and um that house burned down a few days before christmas and when the house burned down um it was just the kids at the house and we had a couple kid friends over it was late in the evening my parents were it was my mom and my stepfather at the time and they were out with some other friends um you know at a bar likely and and uh, it was the middle of winter there. It was a bad winter. I, you know, I don't know why the parents were even gone because the waters was frozen. It was it was a hard winter. And so all of us are in the living room watching TV. It's late. You know, it's just sitting around with these kids. My youngest brother was still in diapers. You know, I was in, I think, second or third grade. I was young. I think the oldest, my brother, he was in the fifth grade at the time. And um and so I get up from the living room and go back to the kitchen to get some popcorn. And I see out the back window, the back kitchen window is just like engulfed in flames. And, and I, and this is part of, you know, I'm sure why I use cannabis medicine. Cause you know, every time around Christmas, I think of this and it brings up emotion with inside of me because of how traumatic it was. But um, you know, the whole back side of the house was on fire. And so I, I run to the living room and I'm screaming like the house is on fire, the house is on fire. And like, they think I'm joking and I'm panicking, you know, and I just start grabbing my younger brothers and like dragging them out the front. And so, you know, all the kids get out of the house and we're just standing in front of the house and my older brother's trying to, you know, put the fire out, but the water's frozen and our closest neighbor's a mile down the street. So he just takes off running through the pasture and I just get in the middle of the road. You know, we live in the country. This is country, country, Zephyr. I think it's population about 400, you know. And so I just get in the middle of the street and this car comes and I flag it down. And it turned out to be a, I say it's my angel, but it was a volunteer firefighter from another county. And he came just as my younger brother was running back. And him and my brother ran into that house and just started pulling stuff out. And that house collapsed on them, you know. And on so, them on them on them while they were in it yeah they got out you know but okay it was just it was just traumatic the fire department came their water was frozen in their fire truck so they had to bring another county out so but by, by the time they got out there you know the house was burnt to the ground the chimney was all that was left so the idea of that farm life and the rodeos and everything my mom was a homesteader and we had a garden and all of these great things. 
was it died with that fire and um and that was the best part of my childhood it was in my most informative years and so um when i bought this property my wife and i got this property um we spent the first probably year and a half two years cleaning up there's so much trash you know we didn't want to ask any more of the property owners because we just wanted the property and so we're just cleaning up trash and trash and i start finding burnt stuff like burnt ceiling tiles and wood with nails in it and so i call up the real estate agent and i'm like hey like what is the history of this home because i'm pulling up all this burnt stuff and and so he goes oh well the house burned down about 10 years ago and i go what i thought this was just a 1950s farmhouse that had been like renovated nice because i thought that's all that i could afford was some old farmhouse he said no, this house burnt down at the time. This house burnt down seven years ago to the ground. And they rebuilt the home back to its original floor plan. Well, this couple had lived here for 50 years, you know. And so it kind of hit me as I'm talking and I'm digging through this pile of burnt home. It kind of, God spoke to me in that moment and brought me back to my childhood and showed me what my mother was trying to create. Huh. And what my mother wanted for her children. And my mom was a hard worker. You know, she's, she's, she is a hard worker. She's really sick right now, but she did as best as she could for us children. And, and she used to live in the city. So she moved to the country to bring us children there. So it wasn't just my dream that ended. It was my whole family's dream that ended. And I just felt like God had given me this farm to complete that dream because now the children, my brothers and sisters, my family comes here. I have my niece living here with me. And she gets to experience this life. I know how special it is because how special it was to me as a child. You know, so I just feel like God's healing that part of me, you know. Yeah. And I don't get emotional about it, but he is. He's been working in me to change the trauma that I experienced as a child. You know, because the fire was one level, but the the fire ended the farm and pushed us into a category of being just, you know, on the system, on welfare, living in, you know, Section 8 homes, you know, depending on the government, you know. And it was so defeating because at that time, you know, my, my stepfather left and it was just my mom. And so, you know, it was just... It, it was just hard. But whenever you realize that, you realize that God has been with you. And God has, as a young child, when that happened, I was filled with the Holy Spirit. Even at that age, I was speaking in tongues, hands in the air, loved Jesus, would spend hours sitting in peach trees, writing love letters to God, like loved Jesus. So to go through life and to lose him through my lifestyle and through, you know, being young and irresponsible then to finding him again and realizing all that he did to save me and to bring me to this place and that he gave me everything I needed to accomplish this dream that he's placed on my heart is incredible. And so yeah. what I have learned through all of it is that, you know, regardless of what everybody else thinks about, you know, what I'm doing, how, you know, eccentric I may be in my religion, which I, cause I mean, I do talk to my, my uh, friends and families about the rapture <laughs> and they think I'm, you know, something I'm crazy, but it's, it's within me. God's placed it on my heart. 
And so if, if God's placed it on me to say it, then it's what he expects me to do. And so I just have to do it regardless if it's going to offend somebody or regardless if it's going to make me feel like, you know, people look at me differently. People have looked at me differently my whole life. So, um, so I'm a big advocate for it. I speak to, uh, you know, all of my LGBT friends that will listen. I, um, I speak to them about Christianity because there is a lot of outreach that is needed in that segment. And uh, I speak to um, just people that are, uh, that I know that are Christian, but aren't um, active in church, you know, and sharing the gospel and, and the excitement that um, of the second coming. I think that those are things that are driving a big part of the Christian community right now. And I want to be a part of that too. It's not just the cannabis and hemp movement. I mean, I see the revival going on across the world and it is amazing. And I want to be part of it. And I am part of it in my own way. I'm doing my own, you know, my own outreach. And so, um, but it does drive my business decision. It drives everything. And it's because the Holy Spirit guides me. And if something's not right, my gut tells me right then. And I can read people pretty quickly. And, um, and that's been a, a great quality of mine. And, and, um, and once you realize that it's not, it is not your quality. It's something that you're given. It's a divine. <laughs> you know, divine. That, that is, that's, that, that recognition is, you know, I, I don't, I don't always meet people that recognize that stuff. Um, and I think it's just part of being in this fallen world and being a human in this fallen world is that we always want to take credit for, we want to take credit for the good things and we want to, uh, point a finger of blame when the bad things happen to us and and not take credit for those things too it's just a very human thing to hear but to hear you to to see and and, and we're and, and I'm I got three little kids and we and I'm a, I'm a human too but to hear you always give the to, to recognize that that is really cool that's very encouraging for me nico because it's it's very, probably more than you realize but it's more encouraging for me to hear you recognize have that recognition and go yeah you know what even this talent and skill that I've got, I can't say that it came from me. It was a gift. It was given to me. Not at all. And, you know, and always remember, Miguel, this ask for the anointing of your talent because, you know, there's so much, so many blessings that people hold back from not just having the courage to ask for them. You know, you, you know what that's, that was, that reminds me of something that, uh, <clears throat> that I thought of while you were talking. And that was, Believing and trusting that Jesus is who he says he is and loves you the way he says he loves you. There's, there's, I get the sense that you have a, a pretty good understanding of that. What do you, what are your thoughts on, uh, let me ask this last question here because, and this one I gave to you, I apologize for that first one. I'm sorry. I'm glad, I, <laughs> I'm glad, glad, I'm glad you, you didn't, I'm glad you didn't freeze you. That was good. The, oh, wait, let me get it out. Oh, man, so that was a good conversation. I'm really thinking about a lot of what you said, Nico. It's really good. I'm digging it. I mean, your understanding of things and, and your understanding of yourself, and that's what it really boils down to is understanding of self. I think it's um, part of why I'm here. You know, I, I um, I'm like you. My my mother's Caucasian. My father's Hispanic. But I didn't meet my father till I was 16, and I probably have hung out with him a handful of times. Um, you know, and Finding yourself, your identity in life is like. That's a big one. Knowing where you came from. And, um, and you know, I have a challenging relationship with both my mother and my father. Um, 
you know, and I'm trying to work through these things. But as I'm, you know, before we bought the farm, I'm kind of going back to when I really started addressing these things in my own healing um, was, you know, not knowing where I came from and like being angry that I didn't have the family relationship that I wanted. And it's, it was impossible to have it for so many different reasons. It was impossible for me to have it, but I was heartbroken because I didn't know what to do. And so it was in that moment where God sent me to a, a scripture and, and I, I don't know it word for word, you know, I'm not a theologian, but Sorry, it, I know what you mean. The general meaning of it, the, what you the needed, what you, what, you, what you needed to hear at that, the message that was for you at that time. Yes. Is that you may have come through your mother, but you're of God, you know, that you're of God and that, you know, he's our father. He has so many things stored up for us. He only wants to do good for us. And so once I started really immersing myself into who my true father was, and that my parents were vessels and they're dealing with their own trauma and their own, you know, life struggles, then I can look at God and say, um, this father who set up all of this for me, set up this skincare company, set up this farm, saved it for me. And so many times I'm out in the field and I'm just like, thank you for saving this place for me, for us. You knew that I needed this. You knew exactly what I needed to heal. It's not about money. It's not about anything other than the relationship and what he's brought me here to experience with him. And whatever comes out of me and through me is him. It's his light. It's his blessings. It's his word. It's because it's the only reason I'm here. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's at least how I feel about God and how he brought me out of a major, um, crossroads in my life during that time. It was during the layoff. Um, I, I got into skincare. I didn't even tell you this, that I got into CBD because my wife's mother um, got lung cancer Ooh. and I bought some hemp from Kentucky. I was going to make some CBD oil. We were willing to try anything. Um, and unfortunately she passed away, but, um, but that was my intro into it. And, um, and so going through my partner's, you know, mom's passing and, a few other family passings and estrangement from family, like all these things were adding up to where I needed something. And, and when you're down on your face, trying to figure out cannabis business and your life goals and your career and your family, the person that answered to me in that moment was God. And that's when he told me that, that I was of him. And after that, he's my best sidekick. He's taken with me everywhere. <laughs> I wake up with him. I go to sleep with him. That's cool. That's very cool. All right. I got, you got time for one more question? I got time for one more question. Yeah. All right. Here we go. Do you think this life is a free ride? Meaning, do you believe in a life after this life? And if you believe in a life after this life, do you believe there's some form of payment that's due upon death? Um, I mean, I think if you're a follower of Christ, then, then no, there's no payment because the payment's already been made. Um, but if you have not accepted Christ as your savior, then absolutely there is a payment to be made. And, uh, and we'll all face that, um, at the very end together. And so I, I think that it's, you know, definitely not a free ride. I think that what we do here is a reflection of 
what we will be doing. I mean, I, I fully expect myself to be in heaven cooking with the most. Oh, Nico, you, the fact that you answered that question. No, because Christ already paid it all. What more could I do? That's the understanding that I think a lot of people have a hard time believing. But when you said it so fast, I don't hear many Christians say that that fast. I don't. I, and that's that's why it really caught my attention when you said that. I don't hear many Christians say that that fast. And that's that's discouraging because it's like saying, no, he didn't do enough. And in scripture, they say it, but... And when with the with the way with the way we're everything we've been talking about is kind of like what could we actually do to help ourselves at that point in our lives? And I'm not talking about like a book of deeds. I'm talking like, wow, that deep understanding is like, yeah, he really paid for everything. And and uh, I'm going to give a, just a short illustration. Uh, there's a there's a thing. There's a book, uh, and the chapter in this book was titled "Unearthing the Deepest Root." And he's talking about, he uses the illustration of a plant. And he's talking about uh, stress, anxiety, and fear. And then underneath the surface, medical science can treat stress, it can treat anxiety, it can treat fear. But underneath the surface, there's condemnation. And he's saying that's where Christ came in and took care of it. And that at the root of all that stuff. And I think there's a lot of denominations that, that teach Christianity, that teach the love of Jesus. Like once you accept him, that's good. Now you got to, now here's your list of to do's and, and you got to, you have to maintain it and you better be on your toes. And I think that too many people, too many brothers and sisters get caught up in that stuff. And I've been caught up in it myself. So I, I'm not, I'm not, it's, it's, I'm, I'm including myself in all this stuff. And it's just like, wow, it is, it is, really refreshing and encouraging to hear you say no christ paid it all because there's nothing i can pay for it so i'm i, I went i took a long time to say that but it is really refreshing and encouraging to hear you say that nico well thank you we we do know that uh you know in the end times that there will be a big falling away of christian from christianity and that a big part of the church is what christ referred to as being lukewarm so i I do think that a lot of people are struggling with their with their faith, especially in these times. But, um, you know, this is the time to dig in and to have more faith. And so, yeah, I, I couldn't do it without my um, my God and without Jesus. I, there's just this industry is too challenging. Life is too hard. And <laughs> this industry is too challenging. <laughs> that was funny. You know, you know, I heard you say I heard you, 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 uh, you pulled scripture from Revelation when when he's talking when Jesus is talking to the, uh, the churches and, yes. and he, and he spit and now the lukewarm part. Now, whenever I hear that, and I, I shouldn't say whenever, I should say most of the time when I hear that from the pulpit, it is about the pastor telling the congregation that they have to be hot on fire for Jesus. Like, outward like they want to see it right it's it's like a you you got to do more deeds you got to do all this stuff and i don't think that's what it's about i think because he says i would rather you be cold than lukewarm he doesn't say i'd rather you be he's oh, what does he say hot or cold i think i think he says i if i recall correctly i'd rather you be cold and this is why this is why it's kind of why would you say i'd rather you be cold and this is why i think that it's not about 
what I just described when it comes to lukewarm. I think when he's referencing the, the, the cold water, I think that's the old covenant, the Ten Commandments. It, they're written on yeah. a stone, they're written on cold stone tablets. And there's nothing alive about them. You know what I mean? In terms of yeah. when then you have the new covenant, which is written in our hearts. Yeah. And it is saying, look, here's the Ten Commandments, the old covenant. No one can complete it because the standard is your heart. So in other words, before it even comes to your mind, out of the mouth, out of the actions, it's in the heart first. And that's the standard, which is why everybody fails. And then he's saying, well, if you, if, and this is where, this is where I, uh, denominations mix the old covenant with the new covenant, right? When they say you're saved by grace, but now here's your list of to-dos. And there are some denominations that say, well, now you have saved by grace. It empowers you to fulfill the old covenant when really the old covenant is cold. And because it's cold, it points you to where the heat is. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, it absolutely goes to me. And I... um you know, I'm with you. I, the old covenant was reserved for the Jewish community. And, you know, Romans, uh, in Romans 2.12, you know, it talks about the Gentiles that do not have to obey the law of Moses. You know, when we all know that Gentiles have a special place in Christ's heart, we're actually teaching the Jews right now how to love Christ. So Jesus has always had a special place for the Gentiles. And the fact that Jesus died on the cross for all of us, no matter who we are, what we are, as long as we have a relationship with him and believe in him, that really um, negates any scripture that may hold me down in bondage. But um, Oh, I know. And, and that's, I know, I understand what you're saying, because I remember there's times when I was reading the scripture, it's like, man, I feel like I don't measure up at all. I don't even feel like reading this anymore, because every time I read it, I feel bad about myself. <laughs> it sucks. And that's like. It's like, that sucks. Why would I want to go to that? And that's why that's why it's the lens of like the old covenant and the new covenant. Mixing the two don't work. You either understand. And this is this is why I brought it up. You brought it up, but I was like, wow, you really do have an understanding of, of grace. Because I talked to a lot of people and it's like, oh yeah, I'm saved by grace, but I'm sure I'll have to pay something when I die. Right? And it's kind of like, what are you talking about? If... What's your understanding of grace then? <laughs> you know there's what I mean? I mean, there's nothing to pay. Somebody's going to have a, a bigger, uh, you know, reward at the end. If you, you know, some people are going to be overseeing cities and some people are overseeing communities and like God's still going to have his sidekicks and these people are going to be helping running heaven. And I want to be one of those people. I want to be helping run those massive artisanal kitchens. And we walk out into the gardens and get all of these exotic foods that we've never seen heavenly foods and i want to be cooking with the greatest people and creating meals for the tables of our god and i that sounds amazing that sounds that sounds delicious too it sounds yes. delicious <laughs> and we don't get that i mean we don't even need to eat in heaven so it's like i mean this is like you know i don't know if that's true or not you know what? i don't know you know what i mean i don't know i i don't know because here's the thing i'll just We're, yeah, we'll, I don't we'll, know we'll either, still we'll, we'll still have mouths We'll still I mean, have well, God, you know, Jesus still ate. And so even though Jesus did not need to eat, he still this, ate, is, after, this right? is after the resurrection, right? After right. the resurrection, he came back and he sat down and he ate and broke bread with all of those people still after he had risen. 
And he made and, breakfast for him too. He made breakfast. Yeah. So I mean, food is at the center of community and camaraderie. So right. of course it's there. Of course it's there, and it's going to be um, way more than we could ever hope for. It's going to be amazing. That's cool. Very cool. Nico, is there anything you want to share with listeners before we sign off? Um, no, just if you're in Texas, um, look up our nonprofit Texans for Safe Access and see what you can do to help us change the minds of legislators here in our state. Right on. And it's Bocana Skin, B-O-C-A-N-N-A Skin, S-K-I-N.com. Bocanaskin.com, yep. All right, check it out. Nico, thank you very much for your time. I really enjoyed talking with you. I think this is an amazing conversation. This thank is the you com- so much. Absolutely. Thanks for accepting the invitation. This is the Conversation Cannabis and Christianity podcast. My name is Miguel Torres and I'm your host. And our special guest is Nico Murillo, who is the owner and founder of Bocana Skin and also Texans for Safe Access. Love you all. <laughs>